Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Invisibility, a podcast we created to tell more stories from the intellectual disability community. Today, we have a very special guest uh, who is at the heart of education policy in this country. Oh, that's right, Phil. We have got none other than the federal member for Sydney, if you don't mind, Tanya Plibersek, who is, of course, a shadow minister for education and training. And Tanya, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure to be with you. It's awesome to have you on. And, and to uh, when we get together, often Phil and I will chat with our our guests about the the things that are important to them. And we know for a fact that family always comes up as a priority. It's something that is important to everybody we've had on, and of course, it's important to us. Now, your story that's a uh, that's a bit of an interesting one, isn't it? Because your parents are um, are actually Slovenian refugees. Can you tell us a little bit about their how they met, where they met, and uh, and of course, where you were born? Well, my mum and dad grew up in Slovenia, uh, which was then part of Yugoslavia, and they were children during the Second World War. Um, they had their education really disrupted by um, by the war. They, they both grew up in really very poor circumstances. So their um, parents were farmers, uh, basically subsistence kind of peasant farmers, and they were little kids uh, at the beginning of the war. Um, by the end of the war, they just, you know, couldn't stay really. They they um, they left Yugoslavia illegally. The borders were closed after the Second World War. Uh, they sort of snuck across the border completely separately. They just both had the same idea. My mum went to Italy and she went to the um, International Organisation for Migration then. She lived in a refugee camp. She lived with an Italian family for a while. And then she came to Australia and worked uh, in a, as a domestic and worked in a shoe factory. My dad crossed the border to Austria and same sort of story. He got asked, do you want to go to Canada? Do you want to go to Australia? He said, which one's quicker? And um, that's how he chose to come to Australia. Uh, for him in particular, I think um, his religion was a big motivating factor. Uh, you know, Slovenia in those days was a communist country and they weren't super keen on um, people practicing their religion, and my father was a pretty devout Catholic, uh, as my, as my mum is. Um, so they they met at a dance at the Paddington Town Hall. Uh, their eyes met across a crowded dance floor, and the rest, as they say, is history. My dad was working <laughs> on the snow, snowy mountains scheme at the time, and uh, he kept working there even after they were married for a while. They built a little house in a place called Oyster Bay in Sydney, and uh, my my first brother um, was 12 years older than me, and I had another brother 10 years older than me, and then little afterthought number three was me. Well, now, no doubt when you've got parents that have, uh, you know, forged their own path and illegally jumped borders straight away, you've you've had me at hello when you, I hear that. I, I hear that <laughs> your your family, there's character there. How's that shaped your, obviously, your politics? Clearly, you're, you've, uh, you know, you you see all this. How's that shaped you, their, their grounding and your upbringing? I think um, the, the, probably the, the most significant thing is I just feel so lucky and grateful all the time that they came to Australia. Like they left behind everything that was familiar to them, their language, their family. In those days, you didn't think you'd get on a plane and 
you know, dash back and see your family again. That was it, you know. When they left home, they were leaving for good. And I, I think that's just a phenomenally courageous thing to do. Um, my father always really instilled in us uh, that we had to treat everybody decently and with respect. And I think one of the reasons that he and my mum are both, my, my father died a few years ago, um, but but during his life and um, with my mum, they're both very respectful of people. It doesn't matter how important you are or how seemingly unimportant, they will treat you exactly the same way. Um, they always sought to do good for the people around them. So they're the first people, if someone's sick in the neighbourhood, they'll go and drop around the castrol and, mow, you know, mow their lawn or whatever needs doing. And I think part of the reason for that is they always felt grateful for the help they got, for the great good fortune of becoming Australian citizens and raising a family in a country as peaceful and prosperous as Australia. But also, you know, the little bits of kindness that they received along the way, the the neighbours that helped mum learn English, the um, the people that gave my father a job, uh, took a chance on him to give him a job, they always instilled in us that we needed to repay that good fortune, that we needed to do our share for others. The other part of Tanya's story that, that um, rang a bell for me, Don, was Snowy Mountain, you know, that, that hydro project and thinking about infrastructure projects today, thinking about labour shortages maybe or or jobs, you know, all those sorts of things. It's um, There's a lot of, you know, sometimes we think, the future is all new, but really there's a lot of lot to learn from history. Yeah, isn't that the truth? And, and I've, I loved, and I'd be very surprised, Tanya, I'm really keen to hear um, how this has played out for you in your current portfolio, of course, of education and training, knowing, and you said it a couple of times, you said um, someone took a chance and, and gave your dad a, a, a go and, and did some training and gave him that chance around education. How do you think that plays out for you? Do you think there's always that connection where education and training are, are paramount because you've seen it work for you, you know, so personally? Oh, absolutely. Look, my dad was a plumber and gas fitter, but he had to redo his qualifications when he came to Australia because his um, his uh, European qualifications weren't recognised here. Uh, so I think um, the biggest insight into all of that for me is that a, a trade is a great is a great way to support yourself and support your family. Like I, I really do think what matters is having secure work that you find intellectually interesting and um, rewarding that that you can rely on. And I know that matters a lot for people with disability as well. It's one of the really key elements of the NDIS for me is fulfilling people's desire to have a job that helps them be independent, that helps them make social connection at work. I mean, so many friendships and relationships start at work, don't they? It's part of a real rite of passage for most adults. And I think um, the, the figure that really struck me when we first started talking about a disability insurance scheme actually at the 2020 summit, I was leading the um, social policy 
uh, one of the working groups there and the idea for a national disability insurance scheme was one of the recommendations we made at the 2020 summit. So don't let anybody ever tell you that Kevin Rudd's 2020 summit was not a good idea because, uh, you know, we, we did... Um, we did start uh, talking about the importance of an NDIS then, and one of the reasons was that people want to fully participate as adults uh, um, in work if they if they can. And by the OECD standards, we've got low rates of workforce participation for people with disabilities. That's something that we could do much better in. And the other um, the other thing, I guess. Uh, uh, I would say about the snowy and what it's meant to me is mm. I, I think Australia is capable of really great, big, imaginative, innovative projects. And a time like this uh, after COVID-19 is really the time that we should be thinking about how we renew that spirit. What are the great challenges for Australia today? One of them, I would say, is making sure we've got cheaper, cleaner, renewable energy, more available for Australian households and businesses. Like what a great opportunity we have in Australia to be the green hydrogen superpower of our region. That's exactly the sort of big imaginative project that we could be engaging in as a nation today. And at the moment we've got, we're racking up a trillion dollars worth of debt, but what have we got to show for it? Who will look back and say, well, you know, after the Second World War, we built the Snowy Hydro Scheme. It's made, you know, this huge difference to Australia. What are they going to say about our after-COVID recovery plan? What can you point to for that trillion dollars of debt? We're not going to have that transformative project that we could have with a bit of vision and a bit of leadership. Let's stay a bit, if we can, with, uh, we, we will get into back to schools at some point, but I'd love to stay with work a bit longer because I totally agree with you. Um, you know, I came into this role about 10 years ago and I didn't know what disability services for adults were. My daughter went to a special school. I understood that. I, I, I realised, I guess, I was a carer, but I had very little understanding about um, disability and work. And so for the past decade, I, I've been um, uh, exploring that and, and trying to push the boundaries. And uh, one of the things I'm excited about, Tanya, with the NDIS is, and work is that, uh, and we're seeing it firsthand, um, these infrastructure projects, whether it's the Metro Tunnel in Melbourne or the level crossing removals or all those types of things, increasingly today, state and federal governments are attaching conditions to those contracts so that a certain amount of money has to be spent in rural or Indigenous or disability or certain social procurement areas. And that is seeing transformation happening in, in this disability work sector. So, for example, um, not far away from us now, Don, uh, we have a contract. Uh, we employ 140 people with, uh, with disabilities. And one of our new partners uh, is the Metro Tunnel Project, $11 billion Metro Tunnel Project. Um, there's other nurseries I know that employ people with disabilities and they are growing plants to uh, for the level crossing removal projects. Um, and the big guys in town, the, the lend leases and all those massive engineering companies come knocking on our door looking to spend money and to create jobs in the channel. And the other great news is that the NDIS is seeing more support funding going into these jobs, which means better supervision and better outcomes. So I think there's a great story happening around disability and work. At the moment, we have, as you say, very low participation rates, but I'm, I'm really optimistic that can climb if the 
those two forces keep working together. I was at university. I've been involved um, as a supporter of an organisation called Job Support, uh, which is mostly active in Sydney. I think they've got some clients in Melbourne, but it's been led for decades by a man called Phil Tuckerman, who is an absolute inspiration when it comes to supporting people with disability in open employment. They have... Um, so many clients that uh, they have placed in open employment in all sorts of industries, in in from offices to uh, um, hospitality, um, and I see. I've been to a number of their graduations. I've met their many of their clients over the years, and I see what a huge difference it makes to people to have the independence that comes with work. Now, I'm not saying. Uh, that we should judge people harshly at all who can't work. I just think for most people, work becomes a big part of their social interactions uh, and their independence, and it it can be really life-changing, and we we really need to do um, whatever we can to give more people the opportunity of, of employment. Just one more follow-up and then we'll get back to schools, Don, if I can. But I am so in agreement with what Tanya said because a job, yes, we want people to be paid fairly and not exploited, of course, right? But we do know that a job gives people a sense of pride. There's mental health involved in that. There's relationships. There's connection. There's a feeling like it's worth getting out of bed. You know, there are so many things that come with with a job. And uh, Tanya, so... Um, there's, we have open employment and labels are always, you know, I don't know, unhelpful sometimes, but we sort of have open employment and we have supported employment and, um, and there are 20,000 adults with disabilities working around the country in supported employment and they are earning a, a discount on the regular full minimum wage. Uh, and in addition to their disability support pension and other benefits. And when I started in this job, I had no idea what those 20,000 adults across the country were doing. And I realized it's really an invisible sort of uh, workforce um, because if you walk down the aisle of Bunnings, Coles or Woolies, there are thousands of products that are somehow touched by someone with a disability, assembly, packing, delivery, whatever it might be, and nobody knows and it is one of the things that we are doing, and hopefully through these big government infrastructure projects, we can tell the story about these jobs. And I just want more jobs at all levels. I would love to see open employment become more accessible, and, and that's fantastic for the people that can get there, and we want to see more people get there. But I hope that um, we don't see you know supported employment for people who just want to experience work um, under threat because it is happening in some countries that they are they are looking at that and saying well minimum wage means minimum wage and anything less than that means you don't you know you it's not fair and i am seeing all those jobs sort of disappear so do you have a view around choice and 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 more more work options for people or around that I do, but I also I don't think it's a choice between um, exploiting and underpaying people uh, and paying them the minimum wage. I think uh, if we if we structure this right, you can have uh, the the open employment provider paying some of the money that they make from the work that they're doing to um, to their workforce, but it can be supplemented. Uh, when you yep. think about what governments would spend on keeping someone at home isolated yes. and on their own. Perhaps you spend some of that money uh, helping yes. them 
get get paid decently for the work that they're doing. So I don't think it's an either or. First of all, the thing that got me with Tanya saying that think big, like a great Melbourne Cup winning horse, by the way, but uh, importantly, it's that vision from the government that filters into organisations, whether it's corporate, not-for-profit, doesn't matter. It's the it's that leadership that you mentioned around, you know, anything is possible and what is our legacy post this COVID or coming out of this COVID. Now, if you had have uh, had your way, now clearly, Tanya, you have been instrumental around the NDIS. Um, can you give us a bit of like how big of task was that for you to get your head around you know years leading into it because obviously we see it now it's unfolding and it's working it's ups and downs but what about in the lead up to it what was that like for you I'm so proud of the fact that I was part of the government that introduced the national disability insurance scheme and um, I think people uh, know that I mean, you know, the idea was certainly raised at the 2020 summit, but the bulk of the work really was done by my colleagues, Jenny Macklin and Bill Shorten, the the design and implementation uh, of the scheme. And it was huge and complex to design and implement. Uh, It's like, um, you know, it's like introducing the whole Medicare uh, scheme overnight. Like you know that it's going to take a lot of work before you introduce it and then you're still going to find things that you want to fine-tune along the way. Uh, I think the real key is to have a commitment to the objective of the NDIS, which is to give people choice and autonomy in life, to uh, help people with disability make choices about what they want to achieve and the supports they need um, to achieve what they want to in their private lives and in, and, and, and in work um, for those uh, for whom work is uh, is possible. And if you hold on to that, instead of thinking about this as a great expense, you think of it as a great enabler, uh, enabling participation, it changes the way you approach the, the design of the initial program and any changes that we need to make. I think there are some people who just see this as an expense. I think that's completely the wrong way to look at the NDIS. Gee, it was exciting um, when it was, uh, we're into the hard, harder yards now, I guess. <clears throat> but um, in those early days, Tanya, when it w- went from the 2020, you know, idea to, um, I've never seen a piece of leg- a serious reform legislation of that size move so quickly. I mean, you've been in yeah. government, I think since 1998. Were you surprised at how quickly that got enacted? No, because I think so many people had been fighting so hard for so long to see something like it. You know, it didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of community planning and campaigning and demand for something better. And so it was an idea whose time had come. I thought I was inspired by it because, you know, the Fair Go Australia and Every Australian Counts, you know, we had some wonderful um, themes around it and and seeing the, the, the levers of power, you know, drive something through like that really I think is very inspiring. And it shows you what we can do as a country when we set our mind to it. 
there's no doubt that it's a lot easier when you when we get it across the line, the starting line. But we're we're into it now. So, Tanya, what do you when you think about the future? How does that sit with you? Like, what are your concerns about the scheme? I've got a concern that it will be wrecked by people who just see it as a, an expense. I, I really worry that there are people in the government today who whose main thinking about the NDIS is how do we cut corners, how do we cut costs. I think we need to keep thinking about how do we facilitate participation, how do we facilitate autonomy and choice. Um, that doesn't mean that you don't design carefully to prevent rorting. I don't think, Mm. you know, no government program should be rorted and there are always people who will take any good thing that any government ever offers to its citizens and they think, how do I turn this to my advantage? How do I make a buck out of it without really providing a service? You need to weed out those people. You need to design robust checks and balances so that you get the shonks out of the industry. We haven't only seen this in disability, we've seen it in vocational education, we've seen it in childcare and family daycare, we've seen it in in pretty much every area where government offers assistance, if there will always be someone who'll try and unfairly take advantage or corruptly take advantage. Of course, you have to weed out those people. But the vast majority of people uh, who are using the service and the vast majority of service providers are genuine people doing the right thing, using the program as though uh, in the way that it was designed and and you absolutely have to keep focusing on how we expand and support choice, um, participation and all the good things that the NDIS was designed to deliver. Yeah, and I think you're, you're spot on and sometimes it takes for somebody to show us the cracks so we can work out where the, where it's leaking from. So um, there's certainly some advantages of being able to have something working and look into it. Prior to people getting involved in the scheme, then their first port of call is the education system. And Labor has uh, put their hand up and said, right, in the last two elections we're going to um, put some more funding into the education system. How do you you see that helping kids with disabilities? Oh, there's a number of things that we need to do. Um, The first, of course, is make sure initial teacher education uh, better prepares teachers for teaching children with a diverse range of needs. A lot of teachers will tell you that they start in the classroom not very confident about how to differentiate learning to make sure that they're teaching to the needs of all the children in their class. So um, what we teach our teachers when they're at uni is really important. Then having appropriate um, support in the classroom and continuing professional development. The fact that you know how to teach a particular child with a particular disability doesn't automatically mean that you'll, you'll be right to teach another child with a different type of disability. That continuing professional development Um, Teachers have to be given the time, the space and the support to do that throughout their working lives. Um, We need uh, better funding to um, offer the additional supports that some children need in the classroom as well, whether that is a a, um, teacher's aide or another support worker, you know, the terminology differs from place to place, um, or or other other, uh, supports as well. So, for example... When we first introduced needs-based funding, I spoke to uh, a number of schools that used some of their additional money 
to bring in uh, speech pathologists, uh, occupational therapists, therapists, and others. Not not even because one child had the need, but quite often you'd have a group of children who would have a need for that additional assistance. And in teaching the children with the specialist support, you'd also be teaching the teachers and often parents as well about how to better support their children. Um, at the last election, we committed to an additional $300 million uh, funding for students with disability because we saw the number of students with a um, disability double at the time that funding for students with disability increased by 7%. That's just not good enough. Uh, so it, it is about having the resources to do this stuff, but it's also about having a workforce that is really prepared to um, to meet the needs of every child in their classroom. Every child learning every day. That is our objective. Hey, Tanya, one of those uh, workforce issues that I, I'm going to send you a link if I can up to your, your office because I couldn't agree with you more. And for the past five years, we've been working with Monash University down here in Melbourne. And so pre-service teachers are a buddy up with our some clients that we support and and uh, our crew go along to Monash and it's two pre-service teachers to an adult with a disability and over a 10-week period those trainee teachers get to build a relationship and and practice teaching to that person numeracy and then literacy and then at the end of that period our clients graduate if you like you know from Monash their parents are there on campus they feel part of tertiary education some of those pre-service teachers have said their mind has been blown they want to teach special ed now you know um so with all the talk done about money and costs and billions of dollars and expenses, you know, I look at teachers going through, you know, their course and I go, that's such a relatively simple thing to change, you know, to provide that training. So that when they come out, they've got so much more capacity for the schools to take more kids and wherever they end up teaching, you know, we've got, the, they're better educated. Phil, it's always a concern for me when we, we think about funding going into the education system and we're supporting teachers to be able to teach kids with disability, but there's already a, a framework that exists with the special schools and special development schools. So Tanya, can I just uh, get your your thinking around, you know, when we talk about that funding, how do you look at it and determine whether or not special schools get the funding, special development schools, mainstream private schools? How, how do you, uh, you know, how do you look at that and, and assess that? This is a very, very technocratic sort of answer, but you have a, you have a formula that determines where the greatest need is and the money goes to where the greatest need is and for that you need really good data and unfortunately the data that we have on uh, students with disability is better now than it was when we first started collecting data but it's still not good enough. Um, On the on the difference between uh, mainstream schools and special schools I I know that this is a um, huge and sometimes fiercely contested debate and I really think that in most instances parents really want to make the best choice for their individual child and we need to support um, we need to support choice uh, choice and alternatives for parents. What I would say is that that every school should be able to teach children with diverse learning needs. I don't want any school to say, 
to a parent, we can't take your child, we are not set up to teach your child. If the parent has made a decision that they, they want their child to go to the local, say, the local public school, it shouldn't be the school saying to the parent, your child doesn't belong here. That is the determining factor. Uh, and for that, you need adequate funding, you need adequate um, uh, support for teachers, uh, you, need, you know, you need all of the additional kind of wraparound supports for the student that they might need at that school. Uh, there should never be a barrier to a child going to their, their local school because the school hasn't got the resources to teach the child. Equally um, for uh, students um, going to special schools, I, I, I don't have um, any uh, hostility or objection or, or any any reason that parents, like I understand that the reason um, parents might choose that environment is because they're worried about their child in the mainstream system and I don't want that to be the reason that um, parents are choosing uh, a special school for their kids. I don't want the reason to be we're frightened of what our kids will cop in mainstream schooling if that's where they are. So choices should be about what's best for the child, where they'll get the best education, where they'll be able to flower and flourish best. They shouldn't be made, the choice shouldn't be made because the school says, no, we can't look after your kid or because the parents are worried that their child will be bullied uh, or or, or won't learn, will just be, you know, left to their own devices, whatever the fears are about mainstream schooling. These choices should be strengths-driven, not fear-driven. It's, uh, as Tanya said, it's a very fiercely contested sort of de debate that's challenged me, yeah, as a parent who, uh, what I agree with everything that Tanya said. So, some of the advocates have said um that push-pull thing that Tanya was talking about, If you, as long as special schools exist with those resources, some of the advocates will say there is a pull factor towards those schools from for parents like me, you know, because that's where the resources are. And, and that lets some of those mainstream schools say, look, you might, you might find, you might be happier down the road, you know, over there. So those advocates have, have said, so uh, as long as special schools exist, this push push pull factor will continue, and the only way to to end this uh, dilemma is to is to uh, eliminate that choice. And the other um, I, I find quite offensive, but maybe I'm insecure. But um, view around that is as a parent of a kid with a disability, I I shouldn't be. That's such an emotional decision. I shouldn't even. It's sort of beyond me because I'm making a soft choice, if you like, and I'm setting up my daughter for a secondhand life. You know, in a segregated. Yeah channel so let me let me finish this off um and and I, as i weigh up all that you know in my mind my personal mind i've said to myself and, and to the others look you know i sent my my son to an independent uh you know to a mainstream public school and then a and a private independent school it was co-ed it wasn't religious you know everyone's got all these choices you know boys schools girls schools public private i see autism schools setting up and i think you know what if if there's a group of people that believe that is going to be the best for their child and see them develop well then i'm not going to 
argue shut it down. You know, it shouldn't exist. It's not inclusive. I agree with what Tanya said. I, I want mainstream schools to be inclusive. But if you want to take away my choice of a special school, then I'll wait until everyone else gives up their choices and we have one school system and, and, and then I've got, the, then that's equality. So anyway, it is a very fierce sort of a debate. Can I just add one thing from the kind of the other perspective is I think it is really good for kids who don't have an identifiable disability to have school friends that have diverse learning needs as well. Like actually it's good for our society for people to understand Absolutely. folks are different and you know your your friends might be quirky in all different sorts of ways that um my, you know my kids have got friends who are on the autism spectrum they've got kids with um friends who've got uh different types of physical disabilities it is it is good for other kids um, absolutely to to become less judgmental a little bit less judgmental and and actually you know I hope this is something that has changed a bit since I was a kid. Um, I, I hope that we are becoming more genuinely inclusive as a society. I'm not convinced we're there yet, but I hope we're getting there. Yeah, visibility is so important in the media, you know, in the playground or whatever. When you are around diversity, you, you, you realise you become more understanding, aware, you know, um, open to things. I think uh, the... One thing that it often scares people or is the reluctance around disability is that if they're not grown up with it, if it's not been, um, you know, somebody close to them, then they're just not sure. And it's mm. easier for them not to have the conversation or, or you know, because they're scared of offending or scared of, you know, or, or the outcome. My thinking is always, if you want to know how to deal with somebody with a disability, have a look at their siblings because they'll be the first to go toe to toe with somebody who crosses a line, but they'll be also the um, the same ones that are there to, you know, push them over, knock them down and, and pick them up again. And that, you know, that's life, isn't it? Yeah. No, I agree. Um, my, my two kids, you know, Phoebe's a very different life path, but her big brother, you know, um, treats her like any other annoying sister. And that's a good, that's a good thing. That's great for, for both of them. All right. Well, this has been wonderful, Tanya. We're so grateful to get someone of your uh, caliber with so much going on. You're up there in lockdown in Sydney. We're here yeah. in Melbourne now. So if you want to know how to get through lockdown, we'll give you our numbers. Give you a few pointers on that. Just yeah, we yeah, experienced that. Exactly. So. We're, we're, yes, we're gold what, medal in lockdown. Uh, yeah, absolutely gold. And I'll tell you what, well, I'm just going to be a little selfish one here. For yes. Is online learning. Yes. Online learning has been an absolute bomb. Maybe a bit biased there. Tanya, because I head up the Wallara online for adults with a disability, learning and connecting online, but being able to stay connected during lockdown, Phil, it's been something that's uh, it's changed a lot of people's lives. And uh, and my advice is, whatever you're doing, stay connected. Even if it's a, a quick phone call, an online class or something that you're just connecting with other people, it's uh, it's very, very healthy. So, Tanya, thank you. You've been a wonderful guest. Any any final words to our millions of listeners millions. out there? Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to talk to you today.